morning. Today's scripture reader comes from Luke 2:25 through 38. It reads, Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been re- revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the customs of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared, prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of the people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She had never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is God's word. You may be seated. Man, what great singing today. Thank you, Ben Bailey. Thank you, Ben. You can look at us, Ben. Thank you. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for, well, just the beauty of your presence, the beauty of your grace, the, the beauty of your patience, the beauty of your will, and the beauty of your power at work in our lives. We are grateful for all of that power, all of that beauty, all of that love and mercy and compassion for the way that it not only shapes us, but it shapes history, it shapes your world, your creation. And it also shaped your word, Father. And this word has come to us, and we pray this morning as we look at this story, for some well-known, for some not so well-known, that you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in order to discern it in ways that bring wisdom and strength and courage into our lives. In this, Father, we pray with all of our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen. You uh, probably know the name of the late uh, Ruth Bell Graham. She was uh, the wife of Billy Graham. Uh, A lot of years ago, she tells the story of driving through some construction in the city that they were living in at the time, and it was long construction, and it was bad construction, and not only was there a lot of slowing and stopping and having to speed up and changing lanes and all of these kinds of things, but it just went on and on and on and on. It seemed like she was in construction for about 30 minutes, and when she was uh, pulling out of the construction work on the road into the normal road traffic, there was a little sign that the, the, the uh, Department of Transportation had put up in that state that said, end of construction, thank you for your patience. End of construction, thank you for your patience. 
As you know, uh, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, died in 2007, and very, very famous woman, not only because she was married to uh, uh, someone like Billy Graham, but in her own right, a lot of achievements, a lot of things that she had accomplished in her life and for the kingdom of God. And before she died, she gave some very explicit but simple instructions about her tombstone. She wanted her name, the date of birth, and the date of uh, her death, and then she wanted this. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. You know, you don't have to read the Bible very long to understand that uh, patience is a big deal. Patience is a big deal in the life of a disciple. It's a virtue. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And when we read Luke chapter 2, we discover that uh, Simeon and Anna had a lot of it. They had plenty of it. Both of them, at the end of their life, had been spending a lot of time at the temple, the place where heaven and earth merge on planet earth. And they were going there and spending time there to see what it is that God is going to do next. And in verse 25, Simeon has been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And the Holy Spirit had told him that he will not die until he sees the salvation of Israel and the Gentiles, the entire world, in the Lord's Messiah. And Anna was someone who loved God intensely and in a sort of a radical way, being, I mean, if if we had a, a modern day Anna in our own life, it would be somebody who is in this room every day of their life, praising God and praying. She had been married for seven years, not a whole lot of time by anybody's reckoning. And then for some reason, the reason not given to us, she becomes a widow, and now she's 84 years and continually living her life at the temple. And when Jesus as a baby is brought to the temple by Joseph and Mary to be presented to God by Joseph and Mary, they run into Simeon. And then just a little bit later, they run into Anna. And it's here that I think we are reminded that the popular Christmas, Christmas message is not always that warm and friendly. It's not. Uh, you may have seen, like a lot of us did in 1995, uh, the movie Braveheart, where Mel Gibson is portraying this impassioned Scottish leader by the name of William Wallace. And what he's trying to do is, is to break Scotland free from the tyrannical grip of Edward I, also known as Edward Longshanks. And Wallace is, is, is successful in kind of uniting the Scottish lords. They draw up the battle lines because Edward I is not going to back down. So you have the English on one side, you have the Scottish army on the other side, and the Scottish lords begin to lose a little bit of, of courage. They begin to lose a little bit of, of heart. And William Wallace knows that this fight has got to happen if there's going to be any semblance, any experience of peace in Scotland. And so he's there with sort of his his right and left-hand men. And it looks like the Scottish lords are beginning to turn their armies around when he begins to ride his horse out to the middle of the battlefield. And his good friend Hamish that he's known since he was a little boy asks him, where are you going? And Wallace turns around and says, I'm going to pick a fight. It's a great scene. 
in the movie. And it also, in, in a, some ways, reminds me of the incarnation of Jesus. When you think about the incarnation, it's a reminder that although creation is still fallen and it's full, it's just chock full of the thorns and the thistles and people are living out their experiences of the implications of those thorns and thistles and the curse, there is still a God who rules that only a mighty and powerful God could pull off something so mysterious as the incarnation. His power in the incarnation being revealed. But secondly, it means that as mysterious and at times invisible and sometimes hard to understand that this God is, the incarnation, Him becoming flesh and living like a human being among us, means that God wants to be recognized and He wants to be known in His creation. But the incarnation means also that we do not belong to the kingdom of darkness. It means that God is invading His creation in order to evict sin and to rule the world in justice and to rule in, in love. Remind you of a passage that we, we looked at a couple of months ago. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. When Christ came, as, as one of us, as a human being born of a woman, but God at the same time, the mystery, the great mystery of the incarnation, he grows up and he becomes a man and he's baptized and the Spirit falls upon him and he begins his ministry and he's there in Nazareth and he moves on to Capernaum. But he begins his ministry with a gigantic declaration that every inch of God's creation still belongs to God. And he's coming to pick a fight. He's coming to pick a fight. Which brings us to the irony of the Christmas story. It brings us to some great irony. On the one hand, you have Mary speaking of God's mercy, guiding our feet into the paths of righteousness. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 7. You have angels who are showing up in the middle of the countryside, in the middle of the darkness, while the shepherds are sitting around a, a, a campfire. And an angel proclaims, uh, glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, what? Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Chapter 2. It's Simeon, Simeon praying as he has taken that little baby out of the arms of Mary and Joseph and praying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, dismiss your servant in peace because I have seen your salvation for all the nations. It's about Peace on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's all the two-year-old boys and younger in the vicinity of Bethlehem who are massacred by Herod's stormtroopers. It's a young family having to flee the country in order to save their lives and the life of this baby and living abroad for a number of years. It's about a family in the middle of 
of the stream of God's will for their life, but having to live with people who are judgmental and not all that discerning when it comes to how their family came to be. And it's this. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. There are some that are going to rise and there are going to be others that fall and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many will be revealed. And, oh, by the way, Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Merry Christmas. Have a great day. See you later. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but at the same time, He's also the Son of Conflict. Although He is the Prince of Peace, He knew that His life would divide men. A little bit later in His life, in Matthew chapter 10, He says, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I mean, sometimes we get this idea that what Jesus is doing at this time is just making sure that everybody's warm and fuzzy with each other. It does not say that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Now what he did do was to bring peace to men and the relationship between men and God. But he says, I did not come to bring peace, that kind of peace that you're thinking about. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Christ did not come into our world as this vanilla-flavored garden-variety Messiah. He came with some tremendously incredible, at times, uh, to human beings, not only in their time, but ours, repugnant, repugnant. I mean, the claims of Jesus especially, but not just, you know, in particular to their exclusivity, became so odious and so abhorrent and so off-putting, not only to them, but to us today, that people then and today feel compelled to reject it. I mean, when you really listen, I mean, really listen to what it is that Jesus is saying, and not just the parts that you like, but if you really listen to what it is that he's saying, you're given two options. You either comply and say, I'm all in, or you reject it. You either comply or you revolt. And that is precisely one of the things that, that C.S. Lewis was trying to, to convey in his writings and as, pr primarily in some of the stuff that he wrote in Mere Christianity. He, he wrote in the 1940s in an England that was slowly on its way to becoming more and more secular. He said, you know, either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being this great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. In John chapter 3, there is this really good guy, Nicodemus. He's righteous, the right pedigree. He's, he's got everything that he needs to have to not only be successful in Israel in the first century, but to be successful in the capital city, in their mind, of the entire world. 
Jerusalem. And there is something about Jesus that he just, he's got to go chase it down. And he goes, you know what, uh, Rabbi, I mean, nobody could do what you're doing unless you were from God. And Jesus doesn't say, thank you, I really appreciate it, and you're a great man too. What he says is, Nicodemus, as good as you are, and as great as, as you try to, to build your life, you, who think that you're in the middle of the kingdom of God, need to know that you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. The next chapter, he's with the opposite Somebody that doesn't look all that great, according to the grid and the filters of first century people living in the Middle East, primarily Israel. But he says to that woman, that Messiah that you have been looking for, the Messiah that you have been longing for, because you do have a lot of questions in your heart, and you do want a lot of answers. Ta-da, I'm he. In John chapter 5, he says, you Pharisees need to get something straight. I'm not against your Bible study. What I am against is the way that you study the Bible. You look at Scripture and you think that by studying them, that's where you're going to find life. When Scripture all along has been pointing to me in order for you to come to me and have life. One day there's this rich young man who has inherited a lot. And he's a good guy. He is, he is an exemplary individual. A young man that's going places. And he asks Jesus, what in the world do I have to do to get into heaven? To get into the kingdom of God? And they begin to have this conversation. And in the end of, at the end of it, the young man says, I, you know, I've been doing all of this. What do I still need to do? And Jesus says... Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And at the very beginning of Jesus' life, Simeon says this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The teachings of Jesus are polarizing. They are polarizing because there's no middle ground. What Simeon says is that when people listen and really listen to what it is that this child has to say, many are going to respond in such a way that it seems like they're just being lifted off the planet. And there are going to be others that it's going to be a falling and it seems like they're just going to get deeper and deeper and deeper in the pit. And there's going to be a sword that pierces the soul. Simon says that this baby is going to be trouble for a lot of people, but he's going to cause others to rise up. He's not just the son of conflict, but he's the prince of peace. One of the first ways to describe Jesus in Scripture that we read about is prince of peace, Isaiah chapter 9. The arrival of peace 
is, is one of the big themes of the birth of Jesus, as we've already pointed out. Paul also writes that it's possible to have peace with God because of this baby, because he is the Christ in Romans chapter 5. But how do you reconcile the conflict that Christ brings and the peace that he bestows? I mean, how in the world do you do that? You know, back in 1992, living down in Brazil, got a phone call from my parents one day. And they told me that uh, my father's body was not at peace. It was not at peace. It was not at ease. It was diseased because a cancer had entered his body and had attached itself to his bladder. How was that peace going to be restored to his body? answer was simple. By blood being spilled. A surgeon would enter his body, remove the bladder, remove the cancer. There would be continuing conflict in his body to bring peace to it through radiation and chemotherapy. His body was devastated, hair fell out, lost weight. But in the end, peace was restored. How was, how was peace restored on a global scale to Western Europe in April, May of 1945? By the invasion of Normandy in June of 1944. Conflict is sometimes needed to restore peace. Bottom line. Jesus spoke truth eternal truth into broken people in a fallen world. The truth he spoke did, all, did not always meet this positive response. You know, giving up everything and selling everything and giving it to the poor. Ha ha, Jesus, that's easy. Come on, bring something else. It did not always meet with a positive response, and that was the norm. So why did some people really listen to him and get it? They didn't fall, but they rose up. It was because he was also the Prince of Peace. His, his life was so beautiful that he could speak such profound truths. His life was so beautiful that he could speak such profound truths and people began to connect the dots. He spoke the truth in love. They realized in listening to him and seeing his life that he was utterly other than they were. And that maybe, just maybe, the truths that he spoke about how you reconcile with God would eventually get them to the place where their life would be beautiful as his life was beautiful. They realized that they were broken and self-centered and idol-ridden. They realized that it wasn't just the sin that everybody could see. It was also all of the sins underneath the sins that everybody could see. They realized that they were corrupt and not only that, they were powerless to do anything about it. And then they repented. And that repentance was the product of the conflict created by the hard truths of human sinfulness and the truth about ourselves and the truth about God and God's love and God's grace and the truth about the Messiah 
being embraced. The the message of Christmas that is so often overlooked is that the peace we seek and the peace that we experience right now with God is the result of conflict. I want to end with us thinking a little bit about Paul. Now here's Paul. He's going to change his name to Paul from Saul. But when we're first introduced to him as Saul, he's at a lynching. And he's not only at a lynching, but he's happy at the lynching. He's holding everybody's coats because he is so in favor of what is happening to Stephen, who is a Christian, that, he is being, that he's being stoned to death, that he's going, fellas, i got to get in on this action. Let me hold your coats so that they don't get dusty while you go about and do your business with Stephen. But, but here's the thing about that. Is that Saul knew very well the teachings that had come from the Christ. In Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26, we have the story of of Saul's conversion. Chapter 9, it's what happened. Chapter 22, chapter 26, it's as he's describing it. And what he says is that here I am going on my way thinking what a great guy I am when all of a sudden the sword pierces his heart. And in a literal way, falls to the ground. Metaphorically, he realizes that he's not been rising, but falling. And he has this conversation with the Christ. And he ends up going on to Damascus. And for three days, the conflict the grief, the sword right through the middle of the heart. For three days, he doesn't eat a thing. And he's blind. And all he can do in his blindness is realize how vulnerable he really is. And how hungry he is for something more than food. And Jesus has been telling him, and he doesn't get to this point until Acts chapter 26, when he says, this is what the Christ said to me. He said, why are you kicking against the goads? Which means that God's word, that the Christ had been goading him. What does it mean to goad somebody? It means you're pushing him. You're driving him to a point. And what does Jesus say to him? I've been driving you. I've been goading you in this direction. Why are you kicking against me? He realizes. He realizes through this incredible personal conflict that he's got idols and self-righteousness and blood on his hands and blood on his hands I mean he's on his way to Damascus for goodness sake with a letter I mean when we think about going on a road trip we think about going to the Grand Canyon he's going to Damascus to hunt down the Christians male female kids to destroy the church and in one of the most gracious pieces of information and story in the bible on the road to damascus a sword pierces his heart 
And this Saul later changes his name to Paul. And he is so revolutionized by what it is that he realized has happened to him and what God is doing in the world and that God's eyes are even on somebody like Paul. That he can go anywhere and everywhere to talk about that Messiah. The one that's going to cause the rising and the falling of many. Who is going to speak a word against in order for hearts to be revealed and sword piercing the heart. And he can write in a place like Romans chapter 5, Therefore, being justified in faith, we now stand in this grace and we have peace with God. Let's not be afraid of, of telling people the truth. Because when we speak the truth in love and we speak the truth with a beautiful life, it allows people to begin to connect the dots. And it allows them to see that the real message, the real meaning of, of Christmas and Emmanuel and the nativity scene in Bethlehem and shepherd and angels is that the end of the world is not going to be the realization, the sense of self in listening to the words of the Christ that we are fallen and that we are idle-ridden and that our hearts are full of mischief but that the real message is that through that mischief and that, that knowing of conflict, there is a peace that passes, Paul would say it, understanding that comes to us. Ben, we want to sing a song. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, do it this morning. If you've been conflicted and just wrestling with yourself, what is it that Jesus is really saying to you? What is it that he's saying to you? Is Jesus saying to you that you're a rotten scoundrel and you'll never be anything different? That you're, that you're a jerk or an idiot or you're the worst person ever? And that you'll never be different? No, that's not what he says. He says the truth about you is that you have, you're fallen. The, the thorns and the thistles have gotten inside of you, but I am the way out. Because the thing that you really want in life and you only sometimes realize this through the conflict, is that you really don't want the stuff, or you don't want the prestige, you don't want the power, you don't want the popular. What you really want is God. Is God. And I'm the way to Him. And I am the way that you become the person that God always created you to be. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If that describes you this morning, we want you to come down and, 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 and allow the Christ to come into your heart today to be baptized and to wash your sins away, to confess that you're not Lord, that He is Lord, to repent. That means to go into the direction of the Christ for all of life and into eternity. And if, again, that is where you are this morning and you want to change it, come down, talk to these shepherds as we stand up and we praise God together.